In this episode, we speak to Liz Swigart, a former PwC partner who has since shifted her focus from the world of accounting to entrepreneurship, social activism and psychology. We, we touch on a number of topics ranging from leadership and authenticity at work to being a role model for daughters at home. In this episode, we talk to Liz about her own mental health journey, which may be difficult for some listeners. You can find details of charities you can contact or support within the show notes. If you need to speak to someone immediately, then please do contact the Samaritans on 116123. They are available 24-7. There is a lot to take away from this episode, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with Liz. Liz, thank you very much for joining us on the Leadership Unplugged podcast. I wanted to start off with something which I read on your blog, actually. It was a quote from an American songwriter, Annie DeFranco, which was, self-preservation is a full-time occupation. And I wanted to ask you why that quote resonated with you in particular and where it came from. So, Annie DeFranco, if you were an angsty 14-year-old girl in the 1990s, Annie DeFranco was, was your songwriter. As a, as, a, as a young woman growing up in New York, she... She was singing, writing, and performing in New York. I, I saw her on stage many times. She really spoke to me because she was fiercely independent. She was queer. She was unapologetically herself. And her song spoke to where I was in terms of trying to identify who I am, who I was, talking about separating myself from my family of origin and becoming becoming me and one of the things that you learn in when you study psychology as i have uh, you learn about family systems and you learn that you leave your family but you never really leave your family so for me it was a time of self-discovery and when when i first encountered her music i was just taken with how she was able to put into lyrics feelings that I hadn't yet found the words for. And this, the lyric in this particular case, self-preservation is a full-time occupation. Uh, it, it, the rest of the verse goes, I'm determined to survive on these shores. Uh, you know, I don't avert my eyes anymore. And she goes on to talk about how she has established herself with confidence. And what has always resonated with me about that particular line is that for so much of my life, I focused on everyone else. I focused on for whether it was my job, um, the people around me um, at work, it was my family, um, whether it was, it was my family growing up and the, the family that I've created with my life partner, our children. I spent all of my time focusing on everyone else and I, I left care of myself for last. And, and care was physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And what I have come to realize in my own journey um, with mental health is that caring for myself is a full-time occupation. It, it is a full-time job to give myself the space to be physically well, mentally well, spiritually well, emotionally well, and Doing that job, first and foremost, is what allows me to show up for other people. 
I'm a firm believer in, in what they tell you when you board the airplane and they give you the safety demonstration. And they tell you that in the event of a lack of, of a loss of cabin pressure, um, to put on your mask before assisting others. Because the information they leave out is how quickly hypoxia sets in when you're at altitude. And you have seconds before your ability to make good decisions goes out the window, quite literally. And so for me, my, my number one job is to take care of myself so that I can be there and be truly present for others. Um, and if what I care about is making a difference in the world, I can't do that if I'm not the best me. I'm not in the best place to do that. So yes, self-preservation is a full-time occupation. And that's, I think, a really powerful message. And one thing that comes to mind is in terms of the practicality of of that situation where you understand that without preserving yourself, you can't be of assistance to others. How do you start to set those boundaries in a healthy way that doesn't come off as being self-centered or saying, you know, I'm not going to fulfill other people's responsibilities or how do you manage perception in a healthy way? Ooh, there's a lot to unpack there, Mohammed. So where do we start? I think the maybe maybe the place to start with that is to actually think about it in the leadership context. So one of the most important elements of leadership and one of the least studied, least recognized, least talked about, and frankly, least appreciated is self-leadership, leadership of ourselves. Until we lead ourselves, we cannot lead anyone else. Leadership of self is largely built around the development and enhancement and practice of our own emotional intelligence. And that's really based around kind of three key elements. The first one is self-awareness. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? What is this making me want to do? How do I want to respond in this moment based on how my emotions, which is the chemical part of it, is informing what's happening in my brain, the feeling part of it, and therefore my experience. And how is that making me want to act? When we talk about triggers, we're talking about stimuli that lead us to believe that there's only one response possible, and it becomes an automatic response. It's just stimulus. So learning how do we recognize the stimuli around us, how they affect us, and how they make us want to behave and then being able to make informed choices about that, that awareness, that's really important. Second piece is situational awareness. So this goes to, I think, your question, which is, how do I, how do I know what's going on with me? And at the same time, not lose sight of what's happening with the people around me. What's happening in my environment? What's happening with the people that I'm interacting with? How are they experiencing this? That's empathy. That's trying to cultivate a sense of, okay, so right now I know what I'm going through. I know kind of why I'm feeling this way. Where's everybody else in this situation? And then recognizing that I have a choice. In fact, I have multiple choices. Frequently, because the human brain hates complexity, we try to narrow it down to like one choice, which is why we often make decisions by not making decisions, because it's the easiest thing ever. If I just don't do anything, a choice will be made for me. And then I can complain about it on the back end because I didn't actually proactively make the choice. Check and check. 
So when you think about your situational awareness, your self-awareness, you bring those two things together, that's your self-regulation. That's your ability to decide, how am I going to behave in this moment? And recognize that in every situation, you have at least three choices, minimum three choices. We tend to already always knock it down to at least two or only two because we like the binary. Binary, the human brain loves the binary. But what happens when, when we kind of force ourselves into that position is we tend to get really stuck in, in a place. So we'll get really stuck in the self-awareness piece or we'll get really focused on what's happening with everybody else and not really thinking about ourselves. And we lose our ability to put those things together and therefore self-regulate. So realize I have a lot of choices. Frequently, it's not that we have problems, it's that we have solutions we don't like. We dismiss choices because we don't like their consequences. They're still choices. There are other ways of thinking about those consequences. There are other ways of moving through it. So when I think about how do I, how do I practice this leadership of self, which is how I take responsibility for how I show up, right? Making sure that my energy is the best it can be when I, I'm coming into a situation. First, I, I really try to think about how is, how is the way that I've shown up, which by the way, is the only thing any of us can control. The only thing any of us can control is the energy that we show up with. Everything else, kind of force majeure. So when, when I come into a situation and I am thinking about, well, you know, I'm an overcommitter. Like I'm somebody who says, like, I say yes before like they've even gotten the question out. I mean, it's really bad at like magic shows where they're like, I need a volunteer for the audience and my hand is in the air. And then I find out I'm like getting sawed in half. Like that's, that's my tendency. And that can be perceived as really selfless by people, right? I'm always there. I'm always in to do it. Um, but it's actually selfish, because I'm always putting myself out there. I'm always putting myself into it. I don't have, I'm not leaving room for anyone else. Um, and two, I'm going to exhaust myself. And when I exhaust myself, I'm no good to anybody. So when we think about how do we set boundaries, what makes a boundary, what, what, first, what is a boundary? Um, boundaries are not ultimatums. Boundaries are an expression of the behavior that we commit to to, to undertaking. It's the behavior we're going to demonstrate in response to someone else's actions. So for example, a boundary would be if someone is continuously emailing you on the weekends and you've made it clear that I, I don't respond. I don't respond to emails on the weekends. Okay. All right. Saying I don't respond to emails on the weekends is not a boundary. Not responding to emails on the weekends is a boundary. It's the, it's the behavior. It's the action. So when, when we set boundaries for ourselves, we communicate clearly to other people what they can expect from us, what we are capable and willing to do, and what we will do if those boundaries are challenged, if they're pushed. Now, I know that all of us on, on speaking today have a lot of experience in professional services, which is the ultimate in boundary challenging work. Client service is. And at the same time, you can't deliver great service to anyone, starting with yourself, 
if all you do is commit to things where the you cannot meet the expectations because you will run out of energy, time, bandwidth, capability. So what what is important in considering your boundaries is one, really understanding for yourself, what is it that I need to perform to the expectations that have been set for me and that I have set for myself? When you understand what that is, then you're in a position to say, okay, what do I know is going to get in the way of me being able to show up in the way that I need to show up so that I can meet and frankly, again, for the three of us on this call, exceed the expectations because meeting expectations often doesn't feel like enough. Spoiler alert, it is. But when you have people who are hyper-curious, hyper-responsible, hyper-driven, it doesn't always come through that way. So one of the things that you, you mentioned in your question was kind of managing the perception. You can't. Other people's perception is their perception. There's this wonderful term in social psychology known as felt understanding. It's super meta. It is how I perceive how you perceive me. So it's like playing a game of telephone with what you think people think about you. And it's amazing if you sit and you really think about it, you're like, oh my gosh, how many things have I done because I thought this other person thought this about me, but really I was just projecting my insecurities onto them and it never would have occurred to them to think that about me because they're too busy thinking about themselves. Because another key concept in psychology, human beings think about themselves while being completely convinced that everyone else is always thinking about them. No, other people are way too concerned with themselves. So back to the point of how do I manage other people's perceptions? I can't. What I can do is I can endeavor to set expectations that are achievable for me, realistic, and manage those expectations. I would say that the key to relationships, whether they be personal, professional, romantic, whatever, is expectation management. So how am I able to set boundaries where I'm clear about this is how I'm going to act when I encounter a particular set of circumstances? What can you expect from me in terms of what, will, what do I commit to doing? And then how do I reinforce with you what it is that we had agreed to in terms of what I would do and what you would do? And from there, that's, that's the only way I have to influence people's perception. Because again, I can't control what people think. And frankly, I wouldn't want, I, like that's just energy. I, I don't even know where I would start with that. So how do I manage expectations? Clear communication, starting with leading myself, knowing me, being aware of what's happening around me, and then being really intentional about what I do with it. That's a really interesting answer. And I think there's a couple of points which I wanted to kind of pick a bit more in detail. This this idea of setting expectations, I think there's going to be a lot of listeners, I think, who are, you know, they're high performers, they want to do really well. And often they set expectations beyond what they can actually achieve in the sense that they want to, there's a common conception that if you're setting really high expectations, you must be really good at what you do. How, how do you, how would you, what would you say to those people and how would you like advise them to manage that 
Oh, little Lizzie. Oh, little Lizzie. I, I, that resonates with me because I still fight that. I, I, I have spent my entire life wanting to super perform because I wasn't super performing for, for me, really. I was super performing so other people would validate me. What I have come to in, in, in this stage of, of my, my maturity as a human um, is that validation is for cars. It's for parking. Affirmation is for humans. So let, let me tell you a little bit about what I mean by that. Oftentimes, I believed that it was important to set outlandish expectations and then quite literally kill myself to, to meet these, these expectations that nobody actually had of me. I'm the one who set them because again, I had this belief that other people wouldn't, would abandon me, wouldn't love me, wouldn't date me if I wasn't so far beyond anything that they could imagine. And what that led to was me increasing and setting these expectations with others that they never actually had in the first place. I never actually stopped to ask, what are you looking for? What, what, would be, what would be a good outcome for you here? What do you expect from me? What's fair for me to expect from you? These are totally normal questions, but it would never occur to me to ask them because again, I thought I had to know all the answers. I thought I had to be everything to everyone all the time. And so I, I absolutely appreciate the desire to go above and beyond. I appreciate the desire to excel at what you do. I appreciate the desire to be recognized for creating great outcomes, delivering tons of value. And what I have realized is that when I don't actually ask others what they're seeking, like what is the value you're looking for here? then I have, I managed to set expectations and try to deliver to them that in fact, don't relate to what the person wanted in the first place. So what has happened for me is learning to ask and doing a lot more information gathering than trying to set for others that, well, this is what I think you should want, because this is what would, would make me feel that I've, I've just, I've gone and been it. I've done it all. And yeah. Because I can't. One of the points you mentioned there was was this kind of innate desire, which I think all of us probably have to some extent or the other for needing external validation or affirmation. And do you think it is a question of having a strong sense of self and a strong sense of your own why? and what you are trying to achieve in your life and what you are trying to get out of it, regardless of other people's perceptions, um, which is potentially a, a part of the, the solution to, 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 that, to that issue? I think that's really insightful, Mohammed. yes. You really nailed the difference between seeking validation and, and being open to affirmation. When we're seeking validation, we want somebody to come and stamp, right? We want them, we want them to say, check, Yes, you are good enough. And that's a really tough place to be because 
then you are really at the whim of somebody else giving you that sense of accomplishment, that sense of worth, that sense of being enough. When you have that strong sense of yourself, that again, it, it, it's not something that you cultivate overnight. But when you have a sense of, I know who I am. I know what matters to me. I know what my priorities are. I know what I want my life to look like. I know how I want to feel when I wake up in the morning. I know how I want to feel when I go to bed at night. When you have that, then you are being affirmed. People are, people are in a sense, supporting the vision that you've already set. You're, you're not getting a rubber stamp of you're good enough. You're getting, in a, you're getting in a sense, the affirmation, the recognition that, that it's, it's really that they, they see you referentially. They see you as somebody, it's like, oh, she knows who she is and I appreciate what she is doing. Affirmation is a way people express appreciation for you and what you're doing rather than validating that you are good enough. I, I wanted to kind of take it back uh, in time a little bit because I'm very conscious of the fact that you know Muhammad and I we're growing up in a or we're, we're developing in a, in a in a time where mental health is a part of the conversation. You know, I'm conscious that maybe you grew up in a time where that wasn't really talked about at all. And I wanted to ask, kind of what influences in your early childhood whether that be cultural familial or you know role models how they shaped your perspective of success and happiness and you kind of touched on it a bit on how it's changed quite a lot since you kind of developed professionally and personally but where where did your definition start off oh Hassan that's really good all right so one, gosh, you just made me feel old. Wow. Back in the day when, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. So I, I was born after the extinction of the dinosaurs, just prior to the rise of the mammals. So I would say that, that growing up in New York City in particular, where if you've, if you've ever sort of seen those sort of quintessential New York movies, you just know that everybody has a therapist assigned to them from birth. I mean, it's just a very New York thing. What's interesting is that mental health was always, like I was always conscious of it. I was always conscious of mental health. What has really shifted is the stigma. I, I feel that the stigma of mental health while I was growing up, the stigma of having a diagnosed condition, mental illness, I mean, that was just sort of oh, well, what can you possibly do with mental illness? That, I, I feel, was, was much stronger in the 80s and the 90s when I was growing up and then coming of age and then entering the, the workforce. I think that what has shifted, and I think a lot of this is due to uh, the transparency that, frankly, social media avails us, is that people can communicate and find community in ways that we never used to be able before. Before, like the people that I knew that struggled with depression had to literally be right around me for me to know about. And most didn't want to share about it because it was so stigmatized. Now, with the internet, social media, we have so many ways of connecting with people in different places. 
I've had this incredible opportunity to connect with people in as far-flung places as Saudi Arabia and Australia and Japan, all of whom resonated with my story about my own mental health journey. And so being able to build community in this way, I think is, is incredibly powerful because when you feel less alone, you often feel less ashamed, less embarrassed, and you realize I don't have to be. I'm not the only one that's experiencing this. So as I think about, you know, in my own journey, what, what has changed, what has evolved, being able to see role models, and we still don't have enough. That's why I've been so public about my own journey. But being able to connect with other people who have, you know, who have empathy and being able to empathize with them, forming those relationships, that's, that's really been part of the sea change that I think we are all experiencing when it comes to talking about mental health, um, particularly mental health in the workplace. I think this may even relate back to, to points both of you brought up earlier around, well, I want to be seen as, as you know, professional. I want to be seen as a high performer. I don't want anyone to think I'm unreliable. And if somebody thinks that there's something with my mental health, then I won't get good work. I won't get good assignments. I won't get promoted. People, people won't believe that, you know, I'm, I'm a good contributor. It's all this incredibly negative self-talk that we kind of force on ourselves. And again, it's this perception of how other people are perceiving us. So in, in my experience over the last, I would really say it's like over the last five years, and although it's hard to use the word benefit and COVID in the same sentence, something that our, our global experience with the pandemic, I think, has taught us is just how important mental health is to all of us and how immediate an issue it is, and that we can talk about it. We aren't alone and there is no, no one place on earth is, is free from, from experiencing it. Yeah. If, if you are comfortable, would, would you be willing to share a little bit more about your own journey with, with mental health and maybe the sorts of things you experienced, how you kind of developed coping mechanisms for them, came to a point now where you're sharing those learnings from, from those journeys? Absolutely. And thank you for asking. I can't say that I love telling my story because it's it's still it's still hard, right? It's it there's a there's a vulnerability, but I really appreciate being able to tell it because I think it's important to tell. So, I mentioned that I grew up in New York City. So, yeah, I, I had a therapist fairly starting fairly early on in my life. I I think it's just that you sort of issued one at birth. I started to experience and exhibit the symptoms of depression when I was between 14 and 16. I remember, I remember being, gosh, I was probably about 16 and standing in the entryway of the brownstone that my, my therapist was in. And I remember a semi-cryptic conversation between my therapist and my mother about how, how you couldn't really diagnose me officially. But yeah, I was depressed. And I, I remember just, I didn't know what to do with that. I really didn't know what it meant. And the internet was still fairly nascent, like in, in like the dial-up phase, where there just, there wasn't a way to do a whole lot of research or to connect with other people. 
So it wasn't until I got to university um, and I had my first full-on like major depressive episode, like can't get out of bed, stopped going to classes kind of episode, that I I really was formally diagnosed and I um, I had a psychiatrist and I started to understand like that there's medication and I thought, oh, well, medication, this is great. One size fits all, I'll be fixed. I I went through three, four different medications before I found one that worked for me. And because I'm in the American medical system, which puts the emphasis really on primarily medication-only treatment, I never really had a chance to engage in the type of talk therapy that would have helped me develop the tools to manage what was happening with my mental health. Um, I was also only diagnosed with depression. It wasn't until more than 20 years later that my, my current therapist diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder, which in retrospect explains so many things. But I went through about 20 years of my adulthood, bouncing between psychiatrists, mostly clinics. I would never see the same person twice. I, I rarely had good talk therapy. And I, I mean, I just didn't have time for it. I'm building this huge career. I mean, I'm traveling. I'm a big deal. Well, I, I wasn't actually that big a deal, but I really thought I was a big deal. And I thought I had to do all of these things and be everything to everyone. And how, how could I possibly, how could I possibly miss a meeting to go to a therapy? So like, are you, you, no, there's just no way. So for 20 years, I would, I would get bad. Like I would have, I, I would start to go down the slide of major depressive episode, which for me, I stopped doing all the things that you do to take care of yourself. Usually it starts with my laundry. And it, it culminates in, in being unable to get out of bed. And for anyone who's never experienced it, it's, it's very hard to put into words this feeling that you are, you are just so heavy. Everything is so heavy. And it's, it's like you have this weight on you that you just, you can't move it. And it's, it's sort of like, trying to swim through quicksand it's it's very strange and even thinking about it now like I I know the experience and because I'm in a I'm in a really great place right now I I can't visualize it again and part of me also doesn't want to so living with that and then living with the other part of depression for me, a lot of times we see it portrayed in the media as like people just crying, sort of like infinite sadness. I've never experienced depression as sadness. For me, depression is the lack of all feeling. It's complete numbness. I would have to look at how other people around me were reacting in order for me to know what the appropriate like emotional response was in a particular situation. I went through a period when, when, I, when I had my, my, the last major depressive episode that I experienced, that was in 2018, um, what well, started in 2018. I remember just having these periods of time where I realized like I hadn't cried. I went 18 months without crying. I mean, and, and I mean, not like full on, not even full on sobbing is like the threshold, but like I didn't even get choked up. I also hadn't really laughed. It was, it was just, I had no reaction to anything. 
And through that, what one of the things that was just the most difficult was that I started to be able to put into words just how awful this this unending feeling of complete lack of connection to the entire world was, not having any any emotional response to anything, not not feeling anything. And when I started to to put it into words in terms of suicidal ideation, leaning towards suicidality, uh, the response that I would get from people was correct, like correct, they were right, but they were deeply unhelpful. So they would tell me, oh, but you have this incredible partner, you have these beautiful children, you've got the most incredible career. And I was like, yeah, I don't care about any of it. None of it matters to me. My biggest fear is that my children would see through it because kids see through everything. I was so afraid that my children would see that I wasn't present with them and they would think that it was because of them. So when I got to a point in 2019, it was June, again, it, I didn't stop what I was doing. I mean, my career was going. I was having, I mean, I was having like the best financial performance year of my career. And I, I just decided, well, you know, as bad as this gets, I'm just going to take more meds. I'll just keep going back to the doctor, whichever doctor I can see, and I'll just get them to give me more so that I can, I can just function. All I have to do is be able to function. And in June of 2019, uh, there was a mix-up at the pharmacy, and they gave me the wrong dosage. They gave me half of what I was supposed to get of one of the three medications I was on a maximum dosage of. Um, and that sent me into a tailspin. Um, and then in November, I, I just reached the absolute rock bottom. I got to a point where I, I just didn't see any way out. Like nothing was going to change. I was never going to feel anything. I wasn't any good to anyone. And I just wanted this numbness to stop. I just wanted this incredible emptiness to go away. And that's when I, I made a plan and I started and I, I acted on that plan to end my life. I am really fortunate in that I, I, I reached out to my partner and in, as part of the process and he just showed up immediately. And that's why I'm still here. But it was, it was very hard to see a way out at the time and so for people who have followed through on those plans I don't have any judgment for that I I know what that struggle is and I also know that we don't have anywhere in the world enough access enough resources enough support for everyone who's experiencing mental health crises and moreover, we tend to wait until it is a crisis. There is so much more that we can do to help people be mentally well and mentally resilient before you reach crisis. And for me, I reached crisis because, again, I kicked the can down the road for decades because I didn't think I had time for my mental health. And that really wasn't true. So after... After that, that moment in the end of November in 2019, I, I actually took a year-long leave of absence. I was a, I was a partner at a big four. 
I took a year long leave of absence. It was supposed to only be 12 weeks because I had like a spreadsheet and I had this like whole plan for how I was going to like eat, pray, love myself back to, you know, normal, normalcy. Um, yeah, that was not a thing. It took me 12 months. And what has emerged from that is a continuing journey. I'm not better. I'm not fixed because I was never broken. What I am is well. I am well right now. And I also know there may, become, there may come a time when I don't feel well again. What I have now that I never had before are tools, are resources, are, is an understanding of myself, but also moreover, people around me know more because I've been able to tell them what I need. They're able to, to understand what, what the slide starts to look like. So now I feel that I have, I've really changed my life to prioritize my, my mental health and well-being, my physical health, which relates directly to my mental health, spiritual and emotional. And that is what allows me to show up for my family. It's what allows me to show up professionally in my career. Um, and it's what allows me to make an impact in the world. So my mental health journey is nowhere near over. It's, I think about it every day. I think about it every day when I take my meds. I think about it every day when I make sure that I'm moving because movement is another form of medicine for me. Um, I think about it when I intentionally meditate. It is, it is a part of me. It is a part of my journey. And it is no longer, it no, it no longer rules my life. No, thank you for sharing that, Liz. That was really brave of you, and we really do appreciate it. I think one thing which I wanted to to ask you, which was you mentioning when you were at rock bottom, your husband was there when he when you needed him most. What did he exactly do? Because you know, as someone, if if I identify a friend of mine that needs help, what what can I actually do to be there for them in the best way possible? Because, like you said, there were many people who said things which weren't very helpful. You know, it, it, what did your husband do in that specific scenario which was helpful to you? Thank you for asking that. Um, first, he just showed up because I was not going to follow through on my plan to hurt myself in front of him. So the fact that he was there was um, without even him really understanding what was happening. He 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 didn't understand. He didn't know until afterwards when I told him because it would it, it the scene would not have been readily apparent to him I, I don't go into details about what my plan was for for reasons of of trying to not contribute to suicidal contagion it would not it was not immediately clear to him why um, but what he did is he sat down next to me and he said how are you what's what's going on and I didn't really have good words. I I just, I, I remember, I, like, I, I was blathering something. I don't want to be here or I don't want to do this. And he was like, well, why don't we, why don't we just, let's go somewhere else. Because again, he didn't understand what I don't want to be here meant in that context. It was, we, I was at home. And so we just got up and we, we went outside. And we just started walking. And I was able to start talking. And he just listened. It was, it, in, my, in this case, it was he was physically present. 
He was non-judgmental. It wasn't, why are you here? What did you call me? What's wrong? What are you doing? Why is it is it actually a terrible question word for talking to other people? It's super judgy. It was it was just you know, what's going on? What can I do? And listening. That that was the piece because that's what allowed me to start finding words that at that point I hadn't. It's amazing to think that you are you literally live next to someone and they have no idea what's really going on in your head. There, there is this belief, it's a myth, that asking someone if they're thinking about taking their life is going to make them do it. No, there is no evidence to support that. Asking someone quite bluntly, are you thinking about suicide? That, that is a very, that is, that is honestly a kind and open question because it gives somebody a chance to actually say it when they might not be willing to say those words themselves. But we, we don't ask each other the questions, not why would you do that? No, but are you thinking about that? And so for, for us, I would say really checking in with people, like really finding out how, how are you really doing? Um, being willing to be vulnerable yourself first and then being persistent, like it's not always, people aren't going to always tell you what's going on the first time you ask. And if you ask someone, how are you doing? I'm great. Okay, check. I've now, I've, I've done my duty. Move on. You, you need, you need to keep, keep following up. And sometimes, sometimes that you, you don't see signs. Sometimes there aren't visible signs. And that's a really unfortunate part of the reality too. Thank you. Thank you again for, for sharing that. One of the questions I had was in terms of being kind of empathetic and creating a culture of empathy on both a personal level and on an institutional level, what advice would you have? Ooh. So on, on an individual level, empathy is one of the things that's wonderful about empathy is that it's learned. Like you can learn and cultivate and develop empathy. Oftentimes people think, oh, well, it's something you're born with. And if you're not innately born with a ton of empathy, then, you know, you're just out of luck. No, we can, you can work on and grow empathy. How do you, how do you do that? Well, first you go back to kind of what I was talking about at the beginning about leading yourself. Self-awareness. Do you understand like, what are you feeling and how is that affecting what you're saying and doing? So often we are unaware of why we're feeling what we're feeling or that we have sort of automatic, automatic behaviors. Like, again, this idea of triggers and also our lack of situational awareness. Cultivating empathy is a lot of cultivating situational awareness so what is happening in the environment around me and how is that affecting the other people in this environment? How are they feeling about it? And then something that's really tough. How is what I am doing affecting them? Thinking about how, how am I showing up here and how is that affecting how 
other people are feeling in this moment. If I was in their shoes, how might I be feeling? What might be going on with them? Not necessarily, what would I want someone to do for me? That, that's, a, that's a question to consider. And what might comfort you, Muhammad, is not necessarily what might comfort me. And so trying to be thoughtful about, I'm, I'm not doing for you what I would do for me. I want to understand from you what would, what would something comforting, like if I was to say, say something comforting, if I was to do something kind, what would that look like for you? And thinking about it from your perspective, not trying to make you me. So that, that's kind of the piece around the, the empathy cultivation at the individual level. At an institutional level, a lot of it's policy. When I say policy, it's because policies are kind of the, the guidelines for how people behave in organizations. So if there are policies that provide for mental health days, that provide for access to mental health services. If there are policies, particularly on the human relations front, this is, this is where this comes into play, around you know, access to employee resource programs, access to healthcare, mental health care in particular. That's extremely valuable. That, those, are, those are ways that the institution can signal that this is important. Because from an institutional perspective, it's not possible to, to, to figure out what to do for every single person in the organization. People in the organization need to be able to take care of each other. The idea is to make a very clear statement around what the values of the institution are. And so if the, if the institution values the mental health of its people, then it needs policies that provide for those people to have access to care to be able to seek out that care so that they have the ability to take the time from their jobs to seek it. It's, it's one of those things that's sort of like vacation. Like vacation is a great thing to have. And if you can never go on vacation, it doesn't really do you any good. So there needs to be clear policy in the organization about providing resources, making it clear what those resources are, educating people about them, because again, if you don't know what's available to you, you can't take advantage of it. The number of people that have, have come to me and, and asked about, you know, well, what, what's available? I'm not even at the same company that they are. And I'm trying to help them navigate to what their institution has. We have to do it at the institutional level. We have to do a better job of articulating our values through our policies. We have to do a better job of educating our people about the resources that are available to them. And we have to do a better job of helping our people to take advantage of them and setting the expectations that if these resources are being provided, they're there for you to take advantage of. And the last one I will add is for the leaders. Leaders in organizations need to show themselves prioritizing and caring for their mental health. When they do not do that, the people around them don't believe that they can. One of the things I learned as a partner was that people rarely focused on what I did. They paid a lot more attention to what I didn't do. So when I, let me give an example of that. 
nobody paid a lot of attention to, you know, oh, I'm taking my kids to school on the first day. Um, people paid a lot of attention to the fact that my kids would be sick and I would come to the office. People would pay a lot of attention to my kids were involved in activities. And I was sort of proud that there was a time that I was sort of proud that I wasn't going to, you know, their play or, or their little concert. This was, this was not, you know, Broadway drama, but it mattered. And what it told the people around me is that they couldn't do the same. They, and by the same, they couldn't go because I didn't prioritize it. And if I didn't prioritize it, why would I ever endorse them doing it? No matter how many times I said, you should do this. Because their answer would be, yeah, you say I should do it, but you never do. Which means that you think that there's a reason not to. So leaders have to lead by example. It doesn't mean that all leaders have to have a mental health challenge. But it does mean that leaders need to show up and be 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 demonstrating how they are caring for their mental wellness. That's a really good point. And actually, I wanted to ask a question. I was speaking to one of my partners recently, and, and she was saying that one of the challenges that she faces is the fact that in the, the workforce that we have right now, uh, as a leader, you're managing multiple different generations and the way people think are very different. Uh, you know, on the one the one end you kind of have like the traditional old guard people who value resilience and hard work and on the other end of the spectrum you have like gen z who are very mental health aware but they also like quite a lot of flexibility as a leader yourself how have you kind of navigated that journey and i think you kind of answered it in the last question but i just wanted to kind of kind of expand on it a bit Absolutely. And, and, and it's a really important question right now. We keep talking about the future of work and I'm like, the future of work is already here. We are already in it. One thing I've, I've noticed is because of when I started my career 20 something years ago, a, a lot, a lot more than I would like to admit, it, it, the sort of the boomers were the ones who were pointing at what came before them, essentially the veteran generation, which at the time was also transitioning out of the workforce. This was sort of the greatest generation. And the boomers were the ones who were seen as super lazy and entitled. And it's, it's funny because history repeats itself. It's, it's a cycle. The, the most senior generation in the workplace is convinced that they went through more than anyone else, that they knew how to do it, and everyone who comes after them is lazy and useless, um, forgetting that that's exactly how everyone else viewed them. But again, as human beings, we tend to seek out information that enhances how we feel about ourselves and ignore information that, shall we say, challenges our positive view of ourselves. We have a self-enhancement bias. So in, in the current, in sort of our current workforce, where not only do we have different generations, but more and more our organizations are increasingly global. We have so many different cultures. So you have generational differences, cultural differences, linguistic differences, um, gender. I mean, there, there's so many. But specifically speaking to, to, the, gen, to the generational bit, I think that, that it is absolutely true that at the time the boomer generation was coming of age and entering the workforce and for the majority of, of their working time, mental health was even more stigmatized than it is now. I will not pretend that the stigma of mental health has gone away. It absolutely has not. But man, are things better. 
And there will always be some who begrudge the current generation for being able to speak about it openly and honestly because they didn't have that opportunity. And that's unfair. It absolutely is unfair. And it's still not a reason to turn back the clock. Oftentimes, what I found as a leader, when um, because I, I've definitely had instances where people have expressed frustration with people based on different generational cohorts. One thing I like to remind folks of is that their best energy is spent focusing on the things that they can control. It's also really unhelpful to try to create additional barriers rather than looking for ways to find commonalities and opportunities to learn from one another. What would often happen is somebody would come to me with a complaint and then the person about whom they were complaining would separately come to me with a different complaint. And my question was, seeing as I'm not the one that either of you has a complaint with, what what do you think makes me well-suited to solve this? And no one had a good answer for me. So, so do I know either of y'all better? Do I have more, more context in the situation? Was I present for any of it? What makes me the expert here to, to intervene? It was, and it was like, well, you're not. I'm like, of course I'm not. So who's best suited to solve this? Oh, the two of y'all. Okay. So what are, some, what are some ways that you could better understand the other person's position? And it was about fostering and creating a dialogue because when people actually talk to each other, they have a much harder time hating each other. This is something called the contact hypothesis. You can thank Gordon Allport for it. It's this idea that if you put people on equal footing and you, you, put, you put some other, some other parameters around it, but essentially if you, if you allow people to meet each other in, in, an e- in an equal place, a peer place, you actually will not be able to dislike each other based on the labels that you'd assign to one another. Like it becomes really hard. And this is, I mean, this is true about generations. There's a lot of evidence in the social sciences to support this around race and gender and ethnicity and religion. When you actually get to know people, it's really hard to dislike them because you've associated them with a category. And one of the things that institutionally we don't do as well is bring people together to dialogue about their own experiences and identify the places where they have commonalities and identify the places where their differences actually make them stronger. Because this is the thing about diversity and difference. One of the reasons that homogenous groups, and I'm being very delicate here, one of the reason homogenous groups of leaders do not like diversity is because it makes answering questions and making decisions really hard because there's conflict and there's friction and there's disagreement and it feels icky. It feels harder than it should be. And it, it's just, it's uncomfortable. Diverse groups do not make decisions easily because people have different perspectives. Now, homogenous groups, very, very people all the same, 
same background, same point of view of the world. They have no friction when they make decisions, like none. It's just sort of like, oh, that meeting was over in three minutes. Those groups also make terrible decisions. The friction is what makes the decisions good. But what we do is we tend to seek out pleasure and avoid pain because, again, humans. So one of the things we see with generational differences is that it makes it a lot harder to do things in the workplace because people have so many different opinions. And if we give those opinions space and we allow people to dialogue, and dialogue is is different than debate, but we allow people to communicate, listen, reflect, respond, then you're going to get way better answers for your organization. You're going to get better answers for your clients. You're going to get better answers for your people. Frankly, you're going to get better answers for the world. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt a bit to get there because it's friction. And what we see, what I see every day, I mean, working with so I work, I work with developers and I'm like, oh my goodness, in a non-scandalous way, I could really be your mother, like in a completely non-scandalous way. Um, and this is, this is sort of mind blowing to me. So I'm, I'm working with folks in tech and I'm like, oh my God, wow. Oh my goodness, I am old. Um, and then I'm also working with people who look at me and are like, who's the whippersnapper? And so it's, it's this sort of weird sandwich to be in. But what I realized is that when we approach each other with kindness, when we approach when when you approach something with curiosity, I'm there to learn. I'm there to have my mind changed. Wow, things get a lot easier. When I approach things as I am here to defend my position and you can have this when you pry it from like my claws. No, it's going to be miserable. So I actually think the more diversity we have in the workplace, the more different generations we have, all of it the better decisions we're going to make universally and the more it's going to hurt to make those decisions. I think that's a, a really powerful kind of argument for, for diversity and one I've not really thought of thought of before. But you touched on a point there about discomfort and one of the questions that's kind of been on my mind is in especially in high-performing environments and I think with anything that where you are stretched or you're challenging yourself, there is an element of, of discomfort. Uh, there's an element of stress, an element of anxiety. Um, and in terms of differentiating what is healthy and what is unhealthy and when that is starting to become a problem uh, of mental health or mental illness, what advice would you have on differentiating between those? Ooh, advice piece number one would be to find someone who was licensed to practice clinical psychology where you are. So I'm going to preface this by saying that this is, this is not licensed psychology advice. It's really important to distinguish between things, exactly as you said, things that make us uncomfortable, things that make us nervous, things that just like, oh, I, I just, I don't feel good. Oftentimes that's a signal that you need to set a boundary. Very, very frequently, that's a signal that you are lacking some healthy boundaries because how you feel compelled to act in a situation is out of line with your values, how to, out of line with how you want to behave, how out of line with what you expect um, other people to do or how you expect them to treat you. So first, being aware that you're uncomfortable about something is often an indicator that you need to think about, hmm, 
is there a boundary that I need to set here or that I need to revisit? There is, is also a distinct difference between feeling, feeling anxious about something. For, for example, my, my, my daughters are on break from school this week and they, um, they drove up with their dad and their uncle to go visit their cousins in another city. And um, it's a five hour drive and it was raining when they left. And I was sitting around a little anxious going, oh, I really can't wait till I get the text or the phone call that they got there safely. Um, because even though I know the odds are that they will arrive safely, I'm their mom, I'm the mom, I, I worry. So that, that's just this sort of little gentle undercurrent. And it's like, okay, but I can manage it. It is not impacting my ability to live my life. I didn't have to cancel calls because they were driving and I wasn't with them. I didn't have to change my routine. My life was still entirely manageable, even though that little worry was happening in the back of my mind. When that sense of worry, that sense of anxiety makes your life unmanageable. I can't, I can't show up at work. I can't leave the house. I can't stop my heart from racing. I can't control my breathing. I feel like I'm going to be physically sick. Those are clinical symptoms. And that's a time you need to talk to a professional. That, that sort of blurry space between I really don't feel good and my life isn't manageable, there's some distance between those two things. And that can be, that can just be work on yourself. Again, self-awareness. What am I feeling? What's bringing up these feelings? What do I want to do about these feelings? What are my choices? That's work you can cultivate on yourself. But if you, if, if the symptoms of your worry are making your daily life activities difficult, that's a really good reason to seek out professional help. I wanted to ask Liz, and thank you for the answer. That was really, really interesting as well. About another form of leadership in the in the form of parenthood. You know, you mentioned you have children, and I wanted to ask in particular, how are you going to have that dialogue about mental health with your children? And I don't think it's like a one-off conversation. I think it's a lifelong journey. But you know, how maybe how are you going to do things differently compared to? Uh, how when you were a child and how do you kind of envisage that dialogue happening? So you're absolutely right. This is an early and often conversation. It started with it started with my girls probably before they really knew um, they really even knew what they were saying when they were um, when they were really quite young. It started off with just talking about our feelings, getting comfortable expressing how you feel, recognizing how you're feeling. Until until I got to a point where I really started to think about what am I feeling? Like, can I, can I name the feelings that I'm expressing right now? Until I really gained that self-awareness. I mean, I thought I was pretty self-aware. Oh, no. Like, there was so much more growth for me around self-awareness. I'm trying to help cultivate self-awareness with my, with my kids. So first, giving them permission I mean, for so many of us, I don't know that we really, as children, felt like we had permission to say how we really felt. And that can also be very cultural. 
there there are many cultures around the world some some cultures that just really it goes beyond sort of stigmatizing even mental health and it goes into well you just you don't put anything out there that could possibly bring shame on your family or make anyone think that everything isn't perfect with us image and status and how important that is so first just giving my kids permission to say that they're angry or they're sad or they're they're worried about something um, my younger daughter she's nine she took one of of her dozen plus stuffed sloths she she has quite the collection of stuffed sloths this is this is her thing she took one of them to a friend's house and while she had her back turned for a moment, the, the friend's puppy got a hold of, of the sloth. And, and Sizzles is now an amputee. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, Sizzles, he, him pronouns, lost, lost his, his right arm. And my daughter was devastated by this. She was so upset about it. And so what was important to me was not to get her to stop crying. Of course, I don't want my daughter crying, but my goal isn't to tell her you have to stop crying because somehow crying is bad, but to understand what had elicited this incredible emotional response. I mean, little bodies have really big feelings. What, what was like, what is bringing this up, right? Because I mean, it, it's not like, honestly, Sizzles is a relatively recent addition to the gang. I mean, not the favorite by any stretch. So where's this coming from? And giving her this space to articulate what's bringing up this feeling? What's what's going on? Why does, what about this feels so big? And understanding that and letting her understand that she was able to then start to soothe herself. So Oftentimes, we feel the need to hide our reactions. Number one, like, oh, I can't cry at work, right? I, I, there's certain things I cannot do. I have, to, I, have to com- I have to conform to these norms, which may or may not exist, may or may not be real. Maybe your perception of how you perceive somebody else perceiving you, meta, meta. But so much of, of this is our cultivating our own awareness and then helping our children to un, to be able to articulate what they're feeling first acknowledge that they can feel a whole bunch of things oftentimes they conflict life is living in paradox you, you know when you're on in the in the on an airplane and you're parked at the gate and it's just like pouring down rain like the sky is completely gray it's like middle of the day but it might as well be dark outside um and it's just pouring 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 and you're like there's no way this plane is taken off and then somehow it does and like three thousand feet later you bust through the clouds and then all of a sudden it's like blinding because the sun is now reflecting off these water droplets and you're like wait a second how is it possible that in in the same two-dimensional set of coordinates it is both raining and bright sunshine our lives exist that way i know that i am completely melting down over something that is ephemeral the loss of the arm of the sloth and it is also really meaningful to me in this moment because it's not really about the sloth's arm it's about something else so as much of of helping my kids to develop their sense of of self-awareness and then how that's and situational awareness and then their ability to self-regulate it's also about developing my own 
we're doing it together. But a lot of it with kids is first, just, oh my gosh, give them permission to feel. Like we spend so much of our lives hiding how we feel, suppressing how we feel, telling ourselves we're not allowed to feel what we feel. It's not valid. There's something wrong with us because we feel what we feel. It is such wasted energy, such wasted energy. I really like that analogy with the the flying above the clouds and it kind of being two completely different weather systems and that exact two-dimensional spot. I think we're going to wrap up. So I just wanted to ask you one quick-fire question and then one a bit more long-winded. The the quick-fire question is, kind of what book would you recommend to people that are looking to read into either kind of organizational psychology or even the mental health side of things? And the, the more long question would be, you, when all is said and done, what would you like people to remember you for, essentially? Ooh, the book question may be the more long one. Gosh, there, like, oh my goodness, there are, there are so, so many great books on, on mental health. I would, I would actually say that I would give people a choice. Um, there is the book, Girl Interrupted which really delves into mental illness. Um, And then there's the movie starring Angelina Jolie. So if you don't want to read, you can watch the film, which is extraordinary. But oh my God, there are, there are so many, I can send you some titles and you can include them in the show notes, but there's, there there are, there are so many. Um, And I guess the the last question was, how would you like people to remember yourself when all is said and done? How do I want people to remember me? I want to be remembered as kind. I want to be remembered as someone who, when I had a choice, I chose to be kind, which often means that I didn't necessarily say something that was right. Again, you can say things that are right. People were right. I had a wonder, I I do, I have a wonderful family. And in in that moment of, of where I was in my depression, that was incredibly unkind. And they didn't know. I, I hope I can be remembered for being kind. I hope I can be remembered for being courageous. And I hope I can be remembered as someone who was just curious about everything. I, I To me, the, the most important aspects of who I am are, are kindness, are openness to growth, a mindset of growth. And that's really led and fed by curiosity. I just, I love learning about people I just I love people and I I think that there's nothing better that we can do with our time on earth than connect with one another in a in a way that's meaningful and authentic that was a really amazing answer I think you could definitely take courageous off because this is a very very insightful conversation and I've enjoyed it thoroughly so thank you very much Liz likewise Liz lots and lots to I think reflect on there and definitely a really unique conversation and i'd like to thank you again for your time for your courage and your kindness to to talk with us today oh it's been my absolute pleasure so again hassan and muhammad thank you so much for inviting me on and i i hope i hope that we will get a chance to uh, to chat and dialogue again but next time in person